Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to part two with Arthur Brooks as we explore the joys of an honorable life lived in pursuit of pleasure, power, and success instead. All right, when two smart people who are well-meaning think the other person is crazy, you know they have different base assumptions. Yeah. So to me, that sounds crazy. Uh-huh. And the reason is that I believe we're in a deterministic universe. Yeah. I'm guessing you do not. I don't believe we're in a deterministic universe. I believe we're in a stochastic universe. Okay, define stochastic. Stochastic means there's randomness in the universe. My father was a biostatistician, a PhD biostatistician, and he was a devout Christian. I said, what gives, dad? You know, I'm an adolescent. What gives? And he said, you don't understand. He said, you know what miracles are? And, he, and I said, what? He said, events that are five standard deviations away from the mean. They're way out on the tails of the, of, the, of the curves. You know, the greatest gift that God ever gave the world was, was a distribution, a random a distribution of events. He believed, and I think it's actually more than plausible, I think it's most likely that the universe is actually has randomness in it, which means it cannot be, you can't get to a single point on most of the, or any of the complex problems. You can't, and so you can simulate a kind of a version of a a curve fit, but you can't actually get underneath them and simulate them properly because we have a stochastic universe and we live with deterministic brains. Our brains say that this happens to this and this happens to this. We have a supercomputer that's good enough. We can figure out all how it all hangs together. And that's the, the supposition behind Einsteinian physics or, or, or Newtonian physics, that these are, that there's a deterministic structure underneath that we're, we're simulating. We're doing the best that we can to put a model on top. It's a map, but that's actually probably not the way that the universe works. And if that's the case, and if we have a craving for the source of that, then it's some thing, someone, some entity that can be the, the, the origin of that complexity per se. What is it? What is it? You know, it's like maybe my model, which is, yeah, I got the Bible and I got God and I got that whole thing. Maybe that's nuts. Maybe it's nuts, but it's, it's a hypothesis. And it says that we can't get it from the stuff. We can't get it from the stuff. You can only get it by looking for it, looking for the true thing. And that's the reason I think that really great intellectual life requires that we have both a, an intellectual pursuit and a spiritual pursuit, and that we need to undertake these things in parallel. I think that's the only responsible course of action. What's happening when you're looking for it? Like I can give you, I, I don't know that Buddhists would agree with this, but I think they would. Uh, what you're getting by looking at it in a Buddhist or looking for it right. in a Buddhist tradition is you're getting out from under the illusion of uh, perception. Right. If that, that's definitely a Western look at it, uh, but that feels pretty accurate. Um, that's a good way of explaining it. 
That's a good way of explaining Buddhist thinking yeah. on it, that you're no longer bound by the illusions. What, what in the language that we're developing here, you're no longer bound by your models. You're actually able to see the road as opposed to staring at the map mm. all the time. It's like, you know, when we're looking at that, we got our devices and we're looking at the, the GPS. If you just stare at the GPS, you're going to crash in your car. You're actually driving on a road in real physical life, but you're more and more and more divorced from that when you're stuck with the, with the, with the models. And those are the illusions that it would say that you're trying to free yourself from by actually imbibing some of the, the oxygen in the, in mm. real life around you. Okay. So if that's the Buddhist take on it, what is the Catholic take on it the catholic take on it is very similar which is that there is underlying reality but that underlying reality is not always apparent and for all sorts of reasons I and mean, that the underlying reality is um made by god and yeah it is the realm of god and that we're not we just don't have the capacity or the you know the preparation to be able to experience no plato talked about this he was pre-christian Plato talked about this, about the, his analogy in of the, the shadows on the cave wall. Mm -hmm. The closest that we can get to actually seeing what's going on is the shadows of what's going on behind the fire in the cave wall. Um, the, a lot of the, the uh, German philosophers from the 17th and 18th centuries and 19th centuries would talk about this too. So the Schopenhauer, for example, Arthur Schopenhauer was obviously one of the greatest early 19th century, mid 19th century philosophers would talk about villa, which was, you know, the sense of will that the reality exists, but we can't see it because we're just not competent and we're trying to put one foot in front of another. And so we create an, an edifice that, that allows us to live, but we can't actually see the reality that the complex reality is happening behind it. All what do you the time. think these guys were struggling with? And maybe you're from your perspective, the obvious answer is just God, but I don't know if it's just God. I mean, that's a word for it. They were struggling for something. They had a craving. Because here, here is the modern take on that. Mm. Uh, you're in a simulation. Right. Now, some people believe you're in a literal computer simulation. Right. And other people like me, mm, I don't necessarily have evidence that you're in an actual computer simulation, but I do have evidence that your brain is simulating reality as a way so that you can grapple with it. Because right. instead of seeing blue, if you just saw the number of photons in a given wavelength that are reflecting off that surface and into your eye, it's so complicated. Mm -hmm. So your brain is just taking this incredibly complex universe, which by the way, for people that don't know, the human, uh, our ability to perceive the actual electromagnetic spectrum is 0.0035%. Yeah. So you're like way, way less than half a percent. And tons of, of dimensionality actually, doesn't exist. Yeah, There's exactly. tons of things we can't see. So we, we've taken this gigantic. We know there are things thing. we can't see. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And we boil it down into something that is just an absolute right. sliver of the reality. So, okay, in a modern context, I get it. But like, what were they coming up against in whatever 2000 years ago when Plato's describing the shadows on the cave wall? What is he grappling with? Like, it's <clears throat> as far as I can tell, he's he's getting underneath, like realizing, oh, my perceptions do not equate to reality. And once you accept that, like everything begins to unwind. Well, it doesn't begin to unwind. It begins to free you. To this understanding that you're, that you begin that you, to see its illusions. You begin to see that you are living in a world of illusion. Now, how is this that that we can 
militate against that by saying it's all of in a simulation and part of the simulation is that we're simulated the simulation creates the illusion that there is something bigger even though there isn't mm. but that's just explaining something away so in a philosophical basis the way i talk about this with my students i say okay we got three we got three choices <clears throat> three doors to go through monty this is, for, you know, for those of our, that's the, the Monty Hall game in economics is based on let's make a deal. This old game show that was on when I was a kid, right? And you get the, the, the contestants would have to choose one of these three doors and then the door would open up and it would turn out you either got a car, or you got a living room set, or you got a goat yeah. or something like that. <laughs> so there's three, there's basically three choices about that, about how you're going to see the, the existence of, uh, of an underlying reality that you can or cannot perceive and you can or cannot get closer to and make progress toward. It has to do with the two concepts of essence and existence. We believe, we all believe that we exist. I mean, you can relax that by saying it's a simulation. We don't actually exist. I don't know, but let's leave that for a moment. And let's just say that we all agree that there's existence. What we don't agree on is the, the nature of essence. Essence is meaning. So I'm alive and my life has meaning. Okay, now the, 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 the traditional philosophical understanding, the Platonic understanding of this, the ancient Greek understanding of this, the Christian, Jewish, um, Hindu, um, Muslim for sure understanding of this is that essence precedes existence. Let's think about that for a second. The meaning of your life existed before you were born. Your job is to live up to that meaning, to find that meaning and live up to that meaning. It existed. It's a cosmic thing. That's what comes from the cosmic oneness. The modern existentialist view, modern philosophy, a lot of it would say that that existence precedes essence. You're born without any meaning. You have to invent meaning the best you can. Good luck. Mm. That's Sartre. It's like go sit in a French cafe and smoke filterless cigarettes and feel depressed. As existence precedes essence. Now, the third, the middle way, the most depressing way is the Nietzschean way, which is the nihilistic way that says existence exists and essence doesn't. There is no meaning. The only responsible course of action in a life is to give up on essence. There is no meaning. Stop looking for God. Stop looking for enlightenment. Stop looking for all of it. That Would craving he that said you, had, you couldn't apply meaning? He said there is no meaning. There is no meaning. Life has no meaning. So you can't apply, because the first one is there is no meaning, but you can apply meaning. That there, no, the first one is that there is meaning. You need to find it and live up to I it. I see. So the second is that there is no meaning until you create it. And the last is that there is no meaning. Got it. And you can keep looking for it and you can keep trying to create it, but that's childish. Let it go. Let it go. That's nihilism. That's why we call, you know, somebody who's nihilistic, somebody who believes that there is no meaning and nothing matters. Mm. That's the reason we call it that in the, in the popular vernacular. So these are the kind of the three choices that we have to walk through. Most, for most of all of existence of humanity, it's been door number one, which is that there is essence. And then we experience existence. And the whole point of life is to figure out and pursue essence of in a responsible and in, in, in a way that's generative and meaningful. And that's what we're trying to do. That's, that's what I think is most compelling. I think that's the most compelling view. I don't, I don't know the truth, you know? And, and, and by the way, when I've talked to Sam Harris about this, he agrees with me that there's things that we don't see, that there is essence that we, we can only barely perceive. And, and all of the things that I talk about, from Catholicism to the stochastic nature of the statistical set of circumstances in which we find ourselves, from the science to the religion, 
is my understanding, my best understanding, my fumbling around in the dark and looking at shadows on the cave wall for what I'm trying to do to, to find the essence that will give me meaning, give meaning to my existence. That's the point of my life. It's very interesting. So, uh, it goes back to what are we grappling with here? So, uh, I'm going to define my version of what I think the God-shaped hole is. Yeah. And I'm going to put it in the context of the language we've been using here. So, cause I come at everything from an evolutionary lens. Right. And I'm very much of it's the a good camp. lens, by the way. Thank you. It really helps you understand a lot. It has been very helpful. Evolutionary psychology is just the best. It's bizarrely yeah. controversial, which I will never understand, mm. but uh, nonetheless, it has been extremely useful in my life. So I come at it from that. So I'm like, okay, if we do have this hole and it is, um, a yearning and that yearning is evidence that there is something, what, what is the nature of the yearning and what is the thing that I'm yearning for? Right. And again, using the language of this conversation, um, I have a feeling that humans have a, um, a very intrinsic evolutionarily derived desire to kneel before something. Mm. And now the question becomes, okay, if you have this push to kneel before something, why, what, what is the evolutionary advantage to those that kneel before the thing? Mm. And the best answer that I can come up with is that you need to get out of the me self and you need to get into the I self and you need to create that distance and by kneeling before something, by put, making something bigger than you, now one, you just you are in the habit of living your life in service of something beyond yourself. Right. I don't think this is definitely just ignorance. So you will help me here. Mm -hmm. I don't think that any of the world's lasting religions would compel you to serve anything other than, ah, oh, this will be interesting. I actually don't know the answer to this question. I will be very shocked if you tell me that any lasting religion has asked people to serve anything other than either humanity itself or a God that loves humanity. Is there? No doubt there are. No doubt there are religions that, that but there are, I guess, but you stipulated to lasting religions. Yeah, because I don't see yeah. how that would be beneficial. Because what, Ultimately, what I'm saying is the proxy, the God-shaped hole is actually a desire to serve your fellow man, because that's going to be the thing that keeps you alive, because you're way better off coming together that's as a group. evolutionary. Yes, yeah. is my gut. And then religion, like the specific, whether oral or written tradition, is the thing that allowed humans to come together in gigantic swaths in a way right. that no other species, no other creature, not ants, nothing can come together in the flexible fashion that we can by right. using ideas right. of religion. Like those just give you an instant bond and I'm yeah. willing to kill for and die for this thing that we have in common. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, I also have a huge amount of time and admiration for evolutionary psychology, but it's totally descriptive and it's not, it's, it's neither prescriptive nor deterministic. So I don't believe that the evolutionary psychology of the things that actually set out our impulses and imperatives, that they, that they prescribe nor proscribe particular behavior. I think that we have choices way beyond our evolution. So let me give an example. 
um, we talked about Mother Nature. She has really two goals for you. And all of evolutionary psychology comes down to survival and, and gene gene propagation. That's what all of, you know, the, the evolutionary psychologists and evolutionary biologists, they say that all that, the, that, that a, any organism exists for is to survive long enough to pass on its genes. Mm. And so it all comes down to that. But virtually everybody believes that we can short circuit that and make decisions that go beyond that. We can do all, and so people will say, okay, well, you laid down your life for a stranger, but that was because you had some evolutionary impulse to behave in an altruistic way that that dates back to a time when that would have been better for your tribe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. I think that the better explanation for that is the animal path versus the divine path. The animal path is incredibly powerful. It's, an, it's a wonderful model for understanding why most things happen and why we have the impulses that we do. But the most interesting questions are the divine path where we actually make decisions that are that are, that go beyond the what the, our evolutionary evolution would suggest is the best path for us that go beyond the things that we want to do that 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 help us to understand that there could actually be something bigger and and this is the really unique thing about the human species is that we can make this election between divine and animal divine and animal and every day is this election between divine and animal and in fact to look for the source of the complex oneness in a world of complex ingenuity a com complicated ingenuity that's to choose the divine path ultimately the divine path or the animal path in the biggest way so not everybody agrees with me a lot of really smart people disagree with me and say all the things that we actually do, they still come back to evolution. Even if they don't look like this is an evolutionarily adaptive thing to do, it, it sort of is. You just need a more complicated understanding of the evolutionary impulse. I disagree. I think that there's, man, evolutionary biology, it just puts us on this track and makes us act in particular ways. And yeah, we got all these habits, the things that we want to do, and then we can decide not to do them. Because we want something higher, because we're called to something higher, because we have a, a dim perception of something that's bigger, that's something that's better, that we're drawn toward. And that's the, the, the oneness that we're distracted from when we're basically just sitting on the animal path and doing money, power, pleasure, fame, money, power, pleasure, fame. And so instead of getting on our knees and contemplating the, the nature of enlightenment, we'll, you know, scroll Instagram. That's interesting. So as somebody who believes that you can't be enlightened prior to death, um, what is it about the contemplation of that knowing you will never be able to actually understand it? What is it about the contemplation that makes your life better? I presume progress, the progress principle, you're getting closer, you're getting closer. And why not? Why would God want it such that you can't attain enlightenment? Because, well, according to Christian yeah, yeah, yeah. The theology. I mean, so this becomes a theological question. It's because ultimately it's the relationship, the beatific vision is the relationship with God, him, him or herself. And, you know, the, the way that the Hindus talk about this, by the way, is that the transmigration of the soul occurs as people are getting closer and closer to enlightenment, at which point the soul will be reabsorbed into the Godhead. So the idea of the soul for Hindus is that your soul, Tom's soul, is a little chip of God, comes down, enters a human being, corrupted by circumstance, et cetera, becomes perfected over a hundred or a thousand lifetimes. And this is reabsorbed into the Godhead. And the ultimate goal of to stop samsara, the endless cycle of birth and rebirth is to be reabsorbed into God is the way that, so th their, their understanding of this is actually easier to understand weirdly than just, I got to see God. Awesome. 
you know, I don't know. It's, but it's all basically saying the same thing, getting closer, getting closer, making progress. This is the goal in life. This is the impulse. And how do we do that? All kinds of ways that our lives are generative and help us do that. You know, as, as silly as, you know, doing a podcast, starting a business, all these things, they help other people. They help us understand ourselves. They make life, they, they lessen the burden for our brothers and sisters in particular ways. This is the reason that it's so profoundly unsatisfying for you to do something that's all me, 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 as opposed to others, others, others. And ultimately you get the juice of, of, the, of these generative things, of these creative things that you're doing when it, when it really does lighten the load and, and improve the lives of other people, because that's the process of getting closer, the process of getting closer and the physical manifestations of the things that we do every day and it gets better. And we hope, and again, this is one theory. I mean, my whole religion, I might be completely off base. I mean, I can't say because I have no data. I can only hypothesize at this point. Faith is belief without data is belief without evidence. It's uh, it's not a set of, a set of non-testable hypotheses is what it comes down to. And it's just that the progress per se is the point of what we're trying to do on earth. That's what the certainly the Dalai Lama would say about the, you know, the from life to life toward enlightenment. That's what the Hindus would say about the transmigration of the soul for the reabsorption of the godhead. That's what Hindus, or that's what Buddhists, sorry, uh, Muslims and Christians would say about trying to actually go to live in heaven with God. But it's all saying the same thing fundamentally about the progress. The, the progress is the point of life. Yeah, I don't know why at this point in my life, this has become such a fascinating question. You're right um, on schedule, by the way. Yeah. No, no, seriously. No, because what you, you, what you, you throw off superstition and you, you look for the pure oxygen of enlightenment. And what looks like, uh, you know, Jesus and Santa Claus, what's the difference? You know, when you're 20, when you're 50, you're going, ah, big difference. Yeah, it's interesting. There is, um, there's something about the way that the world is moving. So my goal in life is to, in a really practical way, help people um, live a life live a life of fulfillment. And I, I never quite know how to put words to it. It Fulfillment survives grief. And so I'm trying to, um, I have thought a lot about in my own life and have found tremendous easing of suffering in recognizing what I call that there is an evolutionary impulse to get me to do the things that will uh, align myself with having kids that survive long enough to have kids, right? And so while I don't have to do that literally, mm -hmm. I have to understand what the algorithms are that are running in my mind to make that happen. And um the more I explore this space of like how one clicks into fulfillment, I do find myself grappling with it as you get under perception and you really start to say, okay, what, what is the bedrock here? Um, it does become, I'll say quasi religious because I don't find myself going, oh, I'm getting closer and closer to God. That isn't what it feels like from my mm -hmm. perspective, from my perspective, it feels like there is ground truth. Mm -hmm. And you can get closer to it. And the more you understand how the illusion is created, the less you are trapped by it. Mm -hmm. And the less you are trapped by the matrix, to use mm -hmm. a very uh, fun word, evocative way of thinking about it's, it. It's one of the most profound movies over the past 30 years, notwithstanding I, the cinematography. It has to do with the, it has to do with the concepts oh, underneath it. A hundred percent. It For me, it is the most useful metaphor for the human existence. And so once I understand how the matrix works, 
then I start seeing it in everything. Yeah. I start seeing it in um, politics, which is not something I thought I would ever engage with. I start seeing it in the culture war. Another thing I never thought I would, would engage with. But as I, oh, I forget what this is a reference to. This is a, a an allusion to something. As I set aside childish things, mm-hmm. I really come to realize that. You just quoted St. Paul. Is that what it is? Yeah. That's hilarious. I can't even tell you <laughs> yeah. where from, yeah. but mm-hmm. uh, that you begin to realize, oh, this is one problem. Yeah. And once you understand it's one problem that manifests in all these weird ways, yeah. helping people get yeah. deeper on that ladder, mm-hmm. because helping people get deeper on that ladder uh, becomes is is very meaningful to me. It's obviously also self-serving in that the deeper on the ladder I go, the more grounded I feel, the more uh, I feel resilient to the slings and arrows of life, the more I feel like facing death isn't scary. Um, Just all the things, all the things. But I am, I don't know what to make of the fact that when I started all of this, it was a lot easier to have conversations about think like this, act like this. Uh, and then finding people wouldn't do it. And every time I tried to scratch as to, okay, where were all my own hangups that it, it has led to me circling around this problem of the God shaped hole over and over mm-hmm. and over. Mm-hmm. It's uh, mm-hmm. very fascinating. Yeah, no, it is. And this is, I mean, psychologists and sociologists have found that pattern that it tends to occur, particularly with people who are, who live in their heads, people who are questioners that they start asking bigger and deeper questions and the answers that typically come to them, even with the, with the, um, with the greatest horsepower that the world can provide, doesn't give them the truth that they seek. It just doesn't give you full flavor. It doesn't give you, you get lots of interesting solutions. Like, yeah, like I, I got a good morning routine. You know, it's really good. I had ice bath, you know, workout, whatever happens. It's just not good but it's not the thing that I'm seeking. You keep finding answers to questions that you weren't asking and you're not finding the solutions to the questions that you really were asking that are inchoate. You know, you don't even know quite how to put words to these questions because the complex is so hard to apprehend that you don't even, you can't even, you don't even know the questions, let alone the answers, Mm. but that's what you're grappling toward. And that's, I believe that's what humans are grappling toward. That's what Aquinas was saying, that we all want the thing, but we'll like, all right, I'll take the substitute. All right, I'll take the substitute. And people start to freak out about dying if they've been taking the substitute, the counterfeit, money, power, pleasure, fame their whole life because they're running out of time and they haven't made any progress because they've been, you know, eating non-nutritious food and not getting, and they're starving to death. And and it's just, they get people get into a panic in their life and they realize they get into this, deep existential dread, this ennui that comes from, you know, the depression of the world that comes because there aren't any answers. And maybe Nietzsche was right. And and they were just looking in the wrong place. So that's what I see. I mean, I'm 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 endlessly interested in and enthusiastic about the about the promise of AI, but I'm not kidding myself for a second to think that it's going to answer the real questions that I have mm. and that real people have and the really the real things that people want. It's funny because, you know, the one thing that we really all want, we don't have the technology for, and we're not getting closer to it. You know, the the, the happiness that everybody really wants, it's not sold on the internet. Mm. It's not provided by the government. You know, we've got 
lunar landers and TikTok videos and you name it. We can invent anything. The ingenuity is almost boundless, but we're not getting closer to the thing that we want because the ingenuity is being deployed toward complicated ends as opposed to the answers to complex problems. We're answering the wrong set of questions is what it comes down to. And that's why you can find people who have everything in the world and are still miserable. They, they couldn't get it there. They couldn't buy what they wanted in that store. Mm. It's the way that it worked. Interesting, the Dalai Lama and I had a conversation about this because he and I have worked together in various projects for the last 11 years. Wow. And we had this conversation about it. He says, you know, he's musing at this one point. When the Dalai Lama muses, you listen. And it's like... It's funny because, you know, the, the, you, you Westerners, you know, you've done everything to create v economic value and tremendous businesses and incredible wealth. And it's so wonderful to give people all this opportunity so they don't starve to death and, you know, the world is richer and all that. But, but you spent no time actually trying to understand the nature of what really matters the most. He says, we're poorer. Yeah. Our societies are poorer in the East, but we spent all our time and all our ingenuity trying to get the source of pure truth. <laughs> did they make any more progress than we did? I'm not sure. But also it's interesting because a lot of Buddhists will look at Christianity and they'll be like, yeah, yeah, we used to believe that 4,000 years ago. <laughs> that's a, that's a, a rudimentary theological technology. You're on the right road. But you're way, way back compared to where we were. Yeah, we used to have a guy. Yeah, we used to have a guy, you know, and the whole thing, as opposed to these are different religions trying to get at the same ideas in different ways. They think there's a natural progression of enlightenment that happens to people and societies. And we're thousands of years behind where they are, despite the, despite the fact that we're hundreds of years ahead economically or thousands of years behind in terms of spiritual enlightenment, complex versus complicated. Same idea. Hmm. I don't know if it's true. That is the question. Uh -huh. All right. Let's reground this for yeah. a second. So, this has gotten pretty heavy, man. I've, yeah. I've never had a conversation like this before. Yeah, this is on a, uh, in, in media. This is amazing. Oh, thank you. If you're working hard to bring your best to everything you do day in and day out, then you know how important your diet is to that effort. That's why I only eat the very best ingredients. And when it comes to animal protein, I always recommend the most trustworthy source of meats and seafood with no added hormones or antibiotics, and that's ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that goes above and beyond to source 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood. And it's all conveniently delivered directly to your door every single month. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. I eat them constantly, and I highly encourage you to give them a try. Sign up for ButcherBox today by going to butcherbox.com slash impact and use code impact at checkout and enjoy your choice of bone-in chicken thighs, top sirloins, or salmon in every box for an entire year, plus you get $20 off. Again, that's butcherbox.com slash impact and be sure to use code impact. If you're just getting into the entrepreneurial game, facing and beating your competition can be one of the biggest challenges you'll face. So give yourself every possible advantage by using the most advanced, most efficient platform out there. That's Shopify. 
for whatever and wherever you want to sell, from your very first product to going international, Shopify is the global commerce platform that will help you grow at every stage of your business. With award-winning customer service, the internet's highest converting checkout page, and a suite of integrated AI tools, Shopify is your all-in-one platform that I love because it makes it so easy to start run, and grow a business. Shopify powers more than 10% of all U.S. e-commerce because businesses that want to grow faster than their competition use Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com impact, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com impact right now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com impact. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation, and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Yeah. Um, assuming that the audience is still with us, let's, uh, <laughs> let's reground this. So in the book, you talk about um, what it is exactly that people need to um, come back together. So you talk about the four pillars to build the life you want. Right. Um, what are those four pillars? And if I can contextualize this, why does modern technology seem to move us in the exact opposite direction? Yeah. So what we want is love. That's what we want. Um, and, and, and once again, the world gives us complicated things and we want complex things. Love is complex. How do you get love? Love of the divine or love of, you know, truth, love of your family, love with friendship. The, the point of intersection between family and friendship is romantic love. So that crosses both those categories and love of everybody is instantiated in the way you earn your daily bread, which is work. So the way that we needed the portfolio, the pillars or the investment portfolio for happiness that we all need is to spend every day thinking about the way that we're going to make progress in our faith or philosophy, whether it's religious or not, family life, friendship, real friends, not deal friends, you know, and, and the modern world gives us lots of deal friends, but not very many real friends, which are, you know, real friends, deal friends are, are useful to us. Real friends are useless. That's, and that's why we don't spend a lot of time on them. And then work that serves is what it comes down to. And so those are the silos. Those are the deposits. Those are the accounts that we need to put investment in every single day. And if we don't, we're going to be, we're going to be missing things. We're, we're going to, we're not going to be as happy as we could be. And we're not going to be building a stable and steady um, happiness that will, that will improve our lives and help us make progress as we go through life. So those are the four things. It's just a very practical matter. Um, I set people on, I can actually set up a course of action. Most people watching us are very good at working. 
And nobody's watching Impact Theory, who's a total slacker. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, I don't think I'm just going to sit around all day, but I'm watching Impact Theory. No, you want to be better at what you do. So everybody watching us has got his work is pretty on point. And okay. And, and it's creating value and it's cool stuff. Generally speaking, it's going to be cool stuff. You're, you know, you've got a cool stuff audience. Good. But are you working on your philosophical life? Are you reading the Stoics? Are you walking in nature without devices? Are you studying the work of Johann Sebastian Bach? Are you engaged in meditation practice? Are you practicing the religion of your youth? You need to do something like that every day. I I recommend at least 15 minutes of wisdom reading every day. Stuff you don't need to read, but you, your soul needs it. 15 minutes a day. And I have a whole, you know, list of books that I recommend. Say, to toss out a yeah. couple. Well, I'll toss out a couple. Um, depending on what 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 tradition you want to start in, you know, somebody who is interested in all Eastern and Western and very questioning and open to all different ideas, I would I would recommend the Way of a Pilgrim, which is written by an uh, an anonymous Russian Orthodox monk in the 19th century. Way of a pilgrim. The Way of a Pilgrim. And what he is, he's just walking around Russia, having adventures, saying one prayer over and over and over again. It's a meditative book. You're reading it. And it's just like, the more you read it, it turns into a page turner. It's the most boring book ever and it turns into a page turner. Zen and the Art of Archery, which actually explains Zen through the activity of archery, through the eyes of a Westerner. So it's a very good way to begin to understand Zen thinking. Zen is the most I self thing ever because it's nothing more than an attitude of observation. That's what Zen really is. It's a stripped thing compared to Tibetan Buddhism. All the Buddhists are going to you know, put in the comment section how crazy and wrong and wrong-headed I am on that. Um, I would recommend The Miracle of Mindfulness by Thich Nhat Hanh, which talks about what is mindfulness. It's being alive right now and how you can actually do that. And there's countless numbers of these things. And there's any number that we could, if you want, if you want fiction that falls into this category is Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. Mm. That is the most spiritual and intellectually, psychologically rich book I've ever read. Mm. Dostoevsky is philosophy, right? So it's kind of like people were reading Atlas Shrugged because they wanted, they wanted objectivist philosophy in the form of a novel. If you want the essence of, the search for the complex oneness in the force of in the form of a novel, Brothers Karamazov by by Fyodor Dostoevsky. It's great. And so there's, there's reading. Second thing is family life. Again, we talked about that before. There's one reason to have schism in your family, and that's abuse. Everything else requires work. The big reason that people drift away from their families is because they're just just lazy. They're just lazy. They just like I ain't gotta call mom. How was when was the last time I saw mom? I don't do the work but it takes two to tango like if the person is just not investing like if you're you're trying to engage with your mom and oh my god yeah i know but the the point is that it, generally speaking it's an iterative process where you don't and she doesn't and you don't and she doesn't and you don't and she doesn't it's got to get restarted and doing the work actually though even the even even unilateral work even one-sided work is incredibly enriching for your happiness because the part about relationships that's best is the giving is not the getting. It's better if you're giving and getting. I get it. I mean, there's an equation. There's a dynamic situation. But even if you don't, it's better to do it than not to do it. Mm-hmm. Friendship is critically important. Real friends, not deal friends. And that means the work that you have to do is not pecuniary. I have people I work with who are real friends, but they started as real friends and we just look for an excuse to spend more time together. And that's how they became deal friends mm-hmm. too. 
But the whole point is, you know, the people that you grew up with, often people went, they went to college with, if they went to college. And, you know, my, I have a son in the military and his buddies in the military, they're his real friends. I mean, they've literally saved his life. And, and he can't lose touch with those people. I guess that's the ultimate deal, right? <laughs> in saving, in saving your life. And then, and then last but not least, making sure that your work serves others and you earn your success and that you're working to make sure if you're an entrepreneur or a CEO like you or me, that you're the people who work for you can earn their success and serve others because they deserve to earn their success and serve others. Mm-hmm. And that's in the hands of the boss to a very large extent. That's the, that's the portfolio. And are you and either you're doing those things every day or you're not. Either you did your reading and called mom and your best friend, or you didn't, right? And every day that you don't, you're just, you're, you're, you're weakening the pillars of your happiness. You're, you're getting, you're getting less competent in the serious business of building your life. I think you may have even said it in this episode, but life is an entrepreneurial game. It's a startup. Mm. So when I think about those different pillars, um, they're not necessarily like, they don't seem like big, scary things. Uh, so how do we approach those from an entrepreneurial standpoint? Like, how do we make these more than just, Oh, I checked in with my friend. I touched base with mom. I read a passage in the Bible. Like how do we go beyond going through the motions and really do something meaningful? Yeah. Well, to, to, to be more entrepreneurial about it, you have to actually in, in, induce risk. You have to inject risk into the proposition. See, one of the things about um, willingness and ability to take risk for outsized return, you, know, you can tell I've written a textbook on entrepreneurship. And it's like, this is what they all have in common is this willingness and ability to take risk in exchange for outsized returns. Mm-hmm. Now, usually for entrepreneurs, the way they'll denominate it is green pieces of paper. But the truth is for the startup of your life, it's usually the denomination is love. Is you're willing to take risk for oh, love. You you said uh, either in the book or the interview, I wouldn't invest in an entrepreneur that was afraid to fall in love. That's exactly right. So that's one of the greatest examples for a lot of people who are watching us. Disproportionately, people who are watching us are going to be people in their 20s, a lot of guys in their 20s, mm. the audience. Unless I dreadfully misperceive the audience. For no, no, theory. you're close, yeah. And, you know, I know a lot of guys, my students, my graduate students at Harvard, who are willing to put $10 million of other people's capital at risk, or even their own, if they've got it. <clears throat> they're willing to, to take a big, scary job, but they're not willing to ask a girl out on a date. Like, what? And the answer is, to that conundrum, to that mystery, that riddle, is that they're not entrepreneurial in the part of the life that matters the most, which is their heart. You know, this is like, if you're willing to put money at risk, but not love at risk and self-esteem at risk, you're not, you're not an entrepreneur and you're not going to have an exciting life. You're just not. And, and here's the interesting thing. You know, I had this, it's <clears throat> talking to this guy. Here's how it worked. I was given a talk and I, and I gave the analogy of entrepreneurship in the business of romantic love. And I said, I gave him a, it was a group of a big group of of twenty somethings in Washington D.C. And I remember the day distinctly. And and I said, "Here's your assignment. You got two weeks to tell somebody you love that person who doesn't know it. And if it's not scary, it's not the right person." Whoa! And maybe, by the way, maybe it's your, maybe it's your dad. Maybe it's your dad. Uh, unfortunately, I love my dad to death. And yeah, tell no, him all and the you time. tell him easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but ah, for a lot of people, they have relationships with their families. Like, mm. I've never told you this, but I love you. And that's like scary and weird and awkward and etc. So it, it doesn't have to be a romantic love. Mm. 
But the whole point is, if it's not scary, it's not entrepreneurial enough. Okay, so this kid, kid in his 20s, um, finds me on an airplane a couple of weeks later. He says, I was at that speech in Washington, D.C., and I can't get it out of my head. And I'm like, yeah. He says, so I'm literally on my way right now to Philadelphia to confess my love to a woman I've been secretly in love with for two weeks. Wow. For two months. Two, and, no, two years. Two years. I've been in love with this woman. I've never told her because I'm too afraid. And I'm going there right now because of your speech. And I'm like, wow. it's only a speech, man. Yeah. <laughs> Bro, be careful. I don't want to ruin his life. And, and, and I did said. Did you get a follow-up on this? I did. Okay, because I'm, so I did, I'm already I did. engaged. I did, like, I, I did, know. I know. And, um, but I, not immediately. I gave him my email and I said a prayer for him and the girl. And I said, and the let, girl. And I, yeah, I said, let, let me know. And then I didn't hear from him. So I thought that was a bad sign. I run into him at a holiday party a few months later. And I say, remember me? He's like, yep. And I said, how did it go? And he said, she shot me down. And she introduced me to the man she was in love with. And it was Oof. awful. It was awful. I said, I was very contrite. I said, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to mess you up. You know, the whole thing. He says, no, no you understand. I've been meaning to email you to thank you. I said, why? He said, because that was the thing I was most afraid of in my life. And it happened and I didn't die right. and I'm never going to be afraid again. Wow. All how right. did you He's get- He's also not going to waste time on her. How, I mean, you're, you're a very successful entrepreneur, not on your first venture. You know, I don't, you need it. It's like the, there's work out of uh, Northwestern, Kellogg the you know the management school mm. northwestern that's a you know lester university and they the work shows that the average entrepreneur has about four failures before their first success and they learn from each one of these failures mm. and that's the basis of the success you need to have at least four substantial heartbreaking rejections that i mean on average if that if startup data are any indication of the startup of life and that's an entrepreneurial life, man. Put your heart on the line. Get it stomped on. Get rejected. You need it. You need to learn is what it comes down to. And by the way, life is more exciting when it actually does work out. If you took a risk? If you took a risk and you failed in the past. Mm. You know, it's like, it's not that good if you didn't take a risk and got rich and you never tried anything hard before that that didn't work. You know, part of the process is the adventure. And part of the adventure is the pain. That's life. And and we need to understand that in love, which is the way, way, way more important than business. Mm. That's well said. Yeah, I think a lot of people uh, these days. So going back to the framing of the question where you've got modern technology is pulling us away. You've got the celebration of business. You've got money, money, money as a metric of success. And the thing I try to convince everybody is, look, somebody that's had the kind of success that most people only dream of nothing has come close to giving me as much joy, fulfillment, anything, protection from the downside, all of it, other than my marriage. Yeah. My marriage is the thing that I protect most fiercely. I am not worried about losing my money. I'm not worried about losing uh, accolades. I am terrified of losing my wife. Yeah, yeah. Like, and 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 market can have a horrible day and you don't like it, but your wife is really mad at you and you're bummed. Yeah. yeah even, even if you know she's not going to divorce you, you're bummed because you don't want the person you love the most to be upset with you. Mm. You want her to be happy with you. 
Because what's happened is basically like your stock market radically tanking. The stock market of what really matters in your life yeah. is the way that that works out. It's actually a really interesting way to think about it. Okay, so if that is the thing, yeah. if that's the thing that's going to really, the thing that we're pursuing is love in a bunch of different guises, but the relationship that's going to be most important to us is the relationship with our spouse. How do we do that well? Yeah. And let's start at the beginning. So yeah. one thing you've said is delete your dating apps. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, or, or, or you know, there, there are some people who you know wind up meeting their partner and getting married based on dating apps. But dating apps, the evidence suggests that it's making dating harder. It's why actually would that be true because it's making it harder to find somebody with you with whom you can have the complex connection that's appropriate for why? a couple of different reasons. Number one is the paradox of choice. So dating apps give you too much choice, hmm. and so what that means is that there's always something better. So are you saying subtle? Yeah. Yeah. Well, part of the reason is because you're not going to find the perfect person. You're going to make the perfect relationship. Oof. That's Oof. the way relationships really more. work. You know, people think I'm going to find, I mean, th 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 I mean, magical thinking is a huge problem. Love at first sight doesn't exist and Agreed. soulmates don't exist. Facts. Right. I mean, I, I believe that God wants me to be with my wife, but that's an entirely different thing than saying that there was this, there was one woman in the world mm. and she lived in Barcelona and she was a little girl and I was growing up in Seattle and the whole, no, no, no circumstances were such that I met the person that was going one of the people that could have been mm. perfect for me if I worked to make it perfect. And your wife is cool with that framing? Yeah, because she knows that that's what God wants us to do. She, you know, we, we believe that this is what God wants us to do. Mm. God puts people together and then puts a lot in our hands. We have free will and we have to, you know, part of making cosmic love-based progress is the things that we do in our relationship. This is the way that we work out the stuff of love in life is, is not, it's all perfect. Then you're in heaven automatically. Well, boring. That's boring. No, no, no. Progress, man. And you got to make progress. One of the ways you make progress is the imperfect that you make as perfect as you can using your imperfect tools. And that's the, that's the exciting adventure that is a, a romantic relationship. And if... And if you start off with the idea that there's always something better because of magical thinking, and I'm going to find the perfect one if I keep swiping right or left or whatever it is. What is it? Left or right? I don't know. I've never yeah, used them. That's right. Because you and I have been married men for yeah. a long time. But the, the, I'm 21. The, you're how many years? 32. Man, it's impressive. 32. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. I, I am in awe of that. My wife's like, it's like 10 minutes underwater. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, no. I like it's that. like being married to an old time comedian from the Catskills. It's nice. Except she's Spanish. Bum, bum. Yeah, yeah. Spanish Jackie Mason. It's anyway, good. yeah. It's a good so, reference that yeah. no one in the audience got, but that's okay. <laughs> Google him. Anyway, so he's probably on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, Black and white. Maybe. Yeah. yeah yes. All, all Jesus. Every, so that's days, number everything. one. The second reason, however, is that, is that it, and again, I'm not down on dating apps. I'm just not, I'm not down. I'm not down with how people use them. Typically people use them. This feels for, like you're caveating. I am caveating for sure, because there's nothing that's good or bad, but that thinking makes it so exactly right. Yeah. And so the big thinking error in apps is finding somebody who's, who's completely compatible with us. Mm. The technology enables compatibility. They, the technology is enables you to find to find people who are more and more and more compatible that you couldn't on the mm -hmm. on the human market, and so that matchmakers or your parents wouldn't find for you, or certainly blind dates or somebody you meet in a bar. You, you just you know it's a crapshoot for compatibility, mm -hmm. which is actually what you need. We're too compatible. Hmm. This is something that most people don't understand. That sounds crazy. Yeah, it, I know. And so, it, but but people will sort on their political views and their likes and their dislikes and, you know, physical characteristics. And what you find is that people that match up on compatibility 
ex, you know, um, ex ante a priori in the dating market. They even look alike, right? And 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 that's a problem. You know, it's basically you wind up looking for somebody who's effectively your sibling, mm. which is my adult kids say is not hot. That's not hot. Not that's hot. Not hot. And so when people are looking for excess compatibility, they like the person less, they find them less attractive. What you need is a base of compatibility, which is lower than you think. Uh-huh. And then tons of complementarity, which is interesting and sexy. Okay. You want now, difference. Yes. Agreed. In not some opposites. Aspect. Opposites don't attract. Where do you want, you're now confusing me. Where do you want things to be where do you want to be compatible you need basics on non-negotiable values preach right non-negotiable values negotiable values doesn't matter people think that too many values are non-negotiable that are Mm -hmm. actually negotiable politics shouldn't be in there you should not sort on politics now 71 percent of political liberals say they won't date a conservative 41 percent of conservatives say they won't date a liberal which just shows that conservatives have lower standards politically than liberals <laughs> and or, or maybe it's men versus women or something like that i'm not going to look into that's the data more but the whole point is that that that's a that's that's a ridiculous barrier mm. that's a ridiculous barrier that just that's basically like classifying being a democrat or republican like being jewish or catholic or atheist it's interesting man like this is one area where I'm with you in the abstract, but political stuff's gotten so weird. Right. People are so devout about it that that isn't interesting. Yeah. And the moment yep. yeah. I don't want to be like, even, even I try not to be dogmatic, but <clears throat> even if I were, I'm not being dogmatic. If they're dogmatic, right. like that's not interesting to me. Yeah, I get it. And one of the best ways actually is what, what I recommend to my students, for example, is that they don't talk at all about politics for four dates. To see if yeah yeah to have I really am into you. It's not until dates. we get into that thing exactly right. So right. you don't actually so the dogma or something. And if you can start to fall in love, suddenly mm-hmm. you're less dogmatic. Yeah, you're less dogmatic about politics. And the person you're falling in love with, when they say something that you would have previously thought was a non-starter, was a deal breaker, it no longer is. Are you and your wife politically aligned? Kind of now, just because we've been together for so long. But you weren't in the beginning. No, she was Spanish. I mean, she was brought up in a a hard red atheist family, you know, really, really, you know, it's like complete socialists. You know, they were on the losing side of the Spanish Civil War Mm -hmm. and they were all atheists. She hadn't been to church since her first communion and interesting and she, i quietly she, assumed that was the th- first thing you guys bonded over no, no, was no, religion. Okay. Oh, no way that was just like that was a 10-year project for me wow totally 10-year project for me which huh. is <laughs> but you know she when i met her she's like no i don't believe in marriage that's an antiquated institution doesn't make sense interesting. Like, we'll see we'll see i mean and i moved to barcelona to try to convince her to marry me how long were you guys together before you got married uh, it, well, I hoped that it would be very short, but it took me two years to close the deal. Okay. From yeah. meet to married? No, from, from moving to marriage. Okay. How so long I'm, from meet to marry? Three. So okay. I, we, we were apart for a year and I was, I you know, know right. Drill. And she didn't speak any English. I didn't speak any Spanish That's or Catalan. Crazy. And, and so I thought I'm going to, ha- the only, I've, I had a premonition. I mean, I, I met her for a week and I told my dad, I think, I think I'm going to marry this girl. Whoa. He's like, can't wait to meet her. I'm like, yeah, I got some problems. I and mean, she doesn't. Uh, speak English. She doesn't live in the United States and she doesn't believe in marriage, but uh, I think, I think it's surmountable. Other than that. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, we kind of stayed in touch for a year and then I, I quit my job and I moved to Barcelona, took a job in the Barcelona symphony because I had this, I had this very strong sense. And by the way, maybe it didn't work out. It was an entrepreneurial thing to do. And I was 24 and it was okay. And then I, 
worked on it and worked on it, learned the language. Mm. Um, and we were in love. And when I was 26 and I said, we have to get married. You have to marry me. She said, yes. And, you know, and then little by little by little, and you come together, see the couples change, people change over the course of their lives For sure. and couples change together. And the couples that don't do well change apart because say, of the hubris. Don't change together. There's too much pride is what comes from it. So what will happen is tons of difference at the very beginning. Lots of love glue, glues you together and then you start to change together. The, the mm. ultimate goal, by the way, for a, a marriage a relationship that lasts, tons of passion. We talked about the neurochemical cascade of falling in love, of you know, love addiction. But within five years, what you need to be left with is what we call companionate love. Your goal within five years to be, is to be best friends with the person. That's your goal. There's lots of passion in companionate love that also sounds not hot. You know, <laughs> here's my companion, Mrs. Brooks. You know, no. <clears throat> companionate love is this is the person that you'll be looking into her eyes on your dying day. Mm. And then who knows all your secrets with whom you can be truly yourself who really has your best interests at heart. That's what companionate love is. And not every relationship can get to that, but that's now, the what goal. do you think that what's the importance of keeping sex alive? So, because that's the, that's the, you know, a, a physical bond that is the most intimate understanding of the, of your relationships. It's an expression of your greatest intimacy. It's also, so, it's also super fun. Yeah. A and B. Yeah. But, yeah, so but I want to make sure that people hear yeah, that. But, but you can have sex with people you're not in love with. You know, people do yes. that all the time too. Carfax. It's way, way, way more satisfying when it's in the, the expression of your greatest intimacy. Mm. That's why the happiest people have one sexual partner in a, in a given year. It doesn't mean one in your whole life. Interesting. It means one There's in a given year. There's actually been a study There's on a that? a study on that using the general social survey at the University mm. of Chicago. Yep. Is that, to me, that just sounds like a proxy for a committed relationship. Yeah, it, it is. And, and the greatest expression of the deep, deep, deep intimacy and commitment mm -hmm. is, is usually sex. Because when people ask Lisa and I, like, what's the secret to a long marriage? We always say, like, one of our top things, obviously communicate, but have a lot of sex. Mm -hmm. Like, you don't want to become roommates. Right. And there is something also, and I don't know what you think about this, but there's something about there's a, an electricity to crossing that line. And there's one person that you cross that line yep. with and not having that, like one for that just entire part of your life to die and for you to yeah. never have that thing. Uh, that well, there's tons of oxytocin brutal. that happens during sexual activity yeah. that you don't get otherwise as well. And that bonds you together again and again. Mm -hmm. Look, there are other ways to get it too, by the way. So sex is not the only way. People often ask, is it bad that couples fight? And the answer is it's bad when they don't. Hmm. And I mean, some people fight a lot. Some people fight a little. My wife and I fight a lot. We fight a lot. We have a lot of arguments. A because lot she's of, Spanish? Because, yeah, I mean, it's for them, it's just a form of communication, you know? <laughs> and there's nothing that's not on the surface. And and so that was hard. The first five to 10 years, I was very aggrieved. Because you're not built like that. I'm American. You know, mm -hmm. we didn't do that growing up in the Pacific Northwest, did we? I mean, it was like... I, uh, yeah, that was not... Learning to fight well was a big thing yeah. I had to learn. But the key is about about that couples that never, never, never fight, they're missing out on some of the greatest source of, of, of intimacy. Because the friction is there. And yeah, just you're not saying things you, that you think that you weren't saying before. And That's that interesting. is deeply I heard you say intimate. This Will you take a second to say that very clearly? Yeah. The, when, the when idea of... Of yeah. intimacy through fighting. Yeah. People often say, it's so weird, you know, after we have a big fight, then we, then we make love. 
mm-hmm. as if it were I've makeup never once sex. Done that. Yeah, I never do that. Are, are you in the mood for sex after you've been in a fight? Well, I'm it depends not. on how the fight resolves. Well, but the I don't whole think point is once. that a lot of people do that, and the reason is because they're raw and intimate in their communication. Sometimes for the first time in a long time. Okay. For the first time in a long time. So if you're the kind of couple that has a, you're not seeing each other very much because you're working mm. really hard and you're on the road and and you're not talking about things and a lot of tension is building up and so, and then finally you have a knockdown drag out fight and you're saying things that you think that 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 are deeply intimate that are your deepest feelings that you would never say at work because you don't have the kind of relationship with other people you don't want to demoralize them you don't mm. have trust you have enough trust and you say things that might be they might be cutting. They might be wounding, but they're deeply intimate. You have a, an intimate bond. You have a, 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 a spiritual bond with that other person because of the intimacy of the communication, even though it was wounding. That's really yeah. interesting. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Having a good sex life is an important part of every adult's quality of life, and it is staggering how many men are suffering in silence with ED, too uncomfortable or embarrassed to seek help. Guys, sex is one of the best things that life has to offer, and if you're one of the people suffering from ED and you're, unsurprisingly, quite ready to get your groove back in the bedroom— I recommend you check out Hims. Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing access to simple and convenient sexual health treatments from licensed medical providers. The process is easy and 100% online, no uncomfortable doctor's visits. Start your free online visit today at hims.com/impact. That's h i m s.com/impact for your personalized ED treatment options. hymns.com slash impact. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. If you're struggling to find the perfect gift for your dad this Father's Day, then you have to check out this grill everybody's talking about. The Schwank Grill. It uses the exact same infrared technology that top steakhouses around the world use to get that golden brown crust on the outside and that tender juiciness on the inside. Just recording this makes me want to go make one. This portable outdoor Schwank Grill heats up to 1,500 degrees, allowing you to grill the juiciest steak you ever tasted in as little as three minutes. Plus, cook chicken wings, hamburgers, lobster tails, salmon, even pizza, and more in just minutes. And the Schwank Grill is made in the USA and is portable so you can use it camping, tailgating, and in your own backyard. This is truly the future of grilling. Just visit schwankgrills.com and use promo code IMPACT to get $150 off a Schwank Grill. That's Schwank, baby. S-C-H-W-A-N-K Grills. Dot com and use code impact and get $150 off a Schwank grill. So I will say this. I have had moments where I was completely uninterested in sex until we had, I wouldn't even necessarily say fight because fight implies that it's like really fiery, 
Um, there was one big disagreement that my wife and I got into, and it was really interesting. The when we when I brought up the thing, we happened to be in a swimming pool. And so my wife likes me to hold her and walk her around the pool. And it ended up being this amazing way to have this argument because it was really like, hey, I've been meaning to say this thing for a few days now. Here's how this thing made me feel like, let's really get into it. And we couldn't see each other's eyes and it made it way easier to have the conversation. So we were like cheek to cheek, but we couldn't see each other's eyes. So there, it just became easier to like get those things off of our for chest. Sure. It was really wonderful. But I, and so I didn't want to have sex until we had that conversation, but it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to run you upstairs. And like, I've never had that response. Like I don't. People are different for sure, but it's important that you have those relationship moments. And those might be as bonding. Your fights might be as bonding for you. as When done well, are you? Yeah, for sure. And there's technique. Yeah. Talk to me about, so. So my guess is that you're in a 21 year marriage and you're going to be married till you die. Yes. You're going to die. It's, I mean, until you death, till you part. For sure. Mm -hmm. And um, so my guess is I could probably write a script for your fights based on that. And when, when something's not right, that the accusation is that we are having a problem. Mm -hmm. Now, when you look at a couple that's tenuous and really having trouble and really in danger, it's like you're doing something and it makes me feel a particular way. So important. Super important. And just changing the language because language change has very strong cognitive impact. So if you you want your fights to be, you're going to fight. And it's important that you relate to each other and you're honest with each other, but you want it to stop actually creating so much brain damage. Mm. Just change the, just change the, the pronouns. That's the first thing to do is to change the pronouns in the fights. Don't say I and you start saying we and us, we and us, we have, we have to do this thing. I mean, whenever we do this thing, we have a problem. And, and you'll find you're stumbling across it at the very beginning. You'll find because it's because, and you did this. We have this problem. We have this breakdown in communication because then you're trying to solve a problem together and mm-hmm. it's a joint problem you're trying to solve. And when you solve it, you've made progress together as opposed to I won and you lost. That's really super really important. Useful. And just mm-hmm. using different pronouns starts, it can actually repair a multitude of problems. Something my wife and I do, and this has been really powerful for us, is we talk in insecurities when we get into an argument. So if one of us is getting angry, it's like we have a shared understanding. If you're angry, it's because your insecurity has been tripped. So confess, like what's the insecurity? What's the thing that's bothering you? So that you can get off of the surface level argument, which is usually very fruitless. And you can get down it's into like, stupid. it's yeah. like you finish the milk or something. Right. Stupid. And yeah. you finish the milk without talking to me and it makes me feel unseen, whatever. And once you get down there, like, Ooh, whoa, why is that making you feel unseen? And also that the person isn't just, I have an insecurity. You triggered it. Shame on you. It's like, okay, I have an obligation to work on my insecurities. You have an obligation to care enough about me that you want to know, but I can't just be like, you have to deal with it. Right. I have an insecurity and you better tread around it forever. Yeah. You're so. doing a lot right. I can tell you that. And this is one of the reasons that, you've, you, that you state so openly that your marriage is the most important thing in your life. Mm. It's, the, it's the central institution of your life. I mean, sure. like this goes all bust. And, and by the way, this is going to go bust. It's all going to go bust. Yeah. Right. But the one thing on your deathbed is Lisa. I mean, here's the problem. 
one of you is going to die first. Yes. Although if you ask my wife, she really wants us to die simultaneously. <laughs> yes. That would be like, she's like, I don't care if I die in a plane crash as long as you're next to me. And I'm like, what? What are you like, talking wait, about? Why are we both going down? Like if I have to die in a plane crash, I want you to be safe on the ground. She's like, no way. I'd want to be with you. So yeah, that, she my says it out of love though. So it's yeah, you, yeah, you actually yeah, yeah. laugh like, about I it. I totally yeah. get where she's coming like, from. I sure hope you die in a plane crash right. with me. Yeah, no, I get it. It's a, it's, but but that's a, you know, this is an, is an issue, right? Because that you will be separated. Yeah, the data say that, except under the oddest of circumstances, you'll be separated. Yep. Now, but what typically happens is really, really happy couples, except under conditions of bad luck, they tend to live long time, have a long mm-hmm. marriage, and one of them dies, and then the other dies. It's crazy, man. <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. Because you have a joint life, you have a joint life yeah. together. The enterprise, it's the the startup. It's a your co-founders. Mm. The other thing that's really interesting too is that the, a lot of the relationships that do best are startups, not mergers. That's interesting. Yeah. Tell me more. Meaning so, second meaning a, marriage? No. Well, I mean, second marriages are sometimes they're really great, but the the marriages that <clears throat> that have the greatest likelihood of success, they're entered into earlier. When you're both in life startup mode, mm. as opposed to it's I got my law degree and you got your PhD yeah. and you got your startup and I got my startup and I think we're and we have separate bank accounts. And now let's have a merger. Mm. Startups are more successful than mergers. There's in data business on and that. In life. Oh, yeah. And the worst, of course, Ooh. are hostile takeovers or acquisitions. But, you know. Wow. Okay. So no, you can I, have a merger that works, yes. but you got to go into it with your eyes open and make it as, as much of a startup as you can mm. make. And that was I don't recommend separate bank accounts. I don't recommend it. Really? Yeah, there's huge data showing that couples are more successful when they have joint bank accounts. Interesting. Let me run something by you. So when Lisa and I first got together, um, we had enough difference in values that it was, I looked at the things that she spent money on and I thought they were dumb. Mm -hmm. She looked at the things I spent money on. She thought they were dumb. So what we did was we said, bills are joint, but spending is separate. And so we put our money together and then we each had the exact same allowance. amount to spend. Yeah. And Good at the time, so when we got married, she certainly had more money than me because I was just absolutely broken in debt. Uh, but then when we got married, I was the only one with a job. And the one insight, and I wish I could track back to where I got this, but I was like, this because this is all pre-functional internet. The internet existed, but nobody was really using it right. for much. Um, and I said, okay, look, we're going to come together, but the we're in this together. So whatever money I earn, it really is half yours. Right. And so we're going to take care of all the bills together. We'll have the separate spending accounts um, and really have looked at everything in that way. Like when we started Impact Theory, um, the lawyers were like, who's going to own 51%? And I was like, what are you talking about? And they said, you can't be 50-50. That's the ultimate divorce nightmare. And so my wife was like, you're obviously going to work more than me. Right. Like you take the 51%. She's like, I don't have any problem with that whatsoever. And I was like, over my dead body. Uh-huh. I was like, I need you to know to the core of your existence, this company, whatever. If something goes wrong with us, I have a problem. Yeah. If we're in a position where I'm like, thank God I have 51%. I've already lost everything. So 50, 50, all you're saying is impact theory is an extension of Tom. And so therefore my life is 50, 50 with you. So axiomatically impact theory is 50, 50. Nice. And really what I wanted to say was impact theory is an extension of Tom and Lisa. Like this is a thing we are doing together. Mm -hmm. And even if we weren't, 
I mean, I suppose at that point I wouldn't have thought about it, but like if my wife betrayed me, mm-hmm. I'd still give her half my shit. Mm-hmm. Just be like, "Where yeah, yeah, you, you love it. her?" Yeah, yeah. And not only that, I don't know who I would have become yeah, I had I not I been know. a startup with her. You're not I mean, prenuppy at all. No, and all you were doing is avoiding fights by you know having separate allowances. Yes, it's not the same correct. thing. I mean, it's just that's just that's just prudent. Yes. is the way that it works out. It's like, yeah, we, we're going to tend to fight over this. And, and you know, we don't want me to accidentally sp- take all the spending on, you know, giant chess pieces or, you know, or, you know, Batman statues or something. Video games, that was Video the, games, whatever the, the thing happens to thing, be. Yeah. And so let's, let's, you know, make it so this, we just avoid a fight. Mm. Let's just simply avoid a fight. And that way you can, I can laugh at the way you spend your money. You can laugh at the way I spend my money instead of feeling a source of resentment. But right. basically saying my money, your money. My account, your account, my property, your mm. property. That's problematic from the very beginning because what you're basically is you're planning for is the dissolution. Mm. You're planning for the, I mean, it's a union. And, and you know, the union of this is to say that we're, I mean, it's it, it, biblically, it's a, a man shall leave his parents and, and cleave to his wife. It's one flesh. I mean, the whole in, in religious traditions, divorce is supposed to be like cutting off your arm. It's supposed to be that kind of, a, of I mean, I get, I get it. It happens sometimes. I get it. I, you know, I live in the real world. It happens sometimes. But for, when you're doing it from a startup, you can't, you don't really understand yourself without Lisa. It's like, who's Tom? I don't know. Alone? Literally. Yeah, that's the thing. Now, not everybody can have that, you know, and I'm not saying people shouldn't, not everybody can, can be held to these standards because of the, the, the reality of things that have happened in their lives. And, you know, I, I talk to people who have been the victims of abuse mm. and, and addiction and criminal behavior yeah. and all of this. And, and they have a need for love in their life and they get married again and they have an established life and it doesn't have these per, per, perfect standards. Social science gives you the, the ideal circumstances, but not the only circumstances. Right. And so here's the key. When the circumstances are not ideal, you have to work consciously with your eyes open to make them as ideal as you can. Mm. So if you've got a merger on your hands, got a merger on your hands, good. You can make that work too, but make it as, as startup-y as you can. Yeah. The thing I would encourage people is to understand that the reason a startup works is for a set of principles. If you understand the principles and can apply them later in life, so be it. One of them is going to be being open to being changed by the relationship, going right. into it and knowing we are creating a union. Right. and in doing that, like what are the ways that we have to move and to dance in this thing in order to make it work. And then a big part of it, especially if you're older is understanding that selection is 80% of the battle. Like if you select poorly, you're going to be in dire circumstances. They they are. I mean, again, without magical thinking, without thinking there is one soulmate, so choose wisely. Yeah, yeah. I that mean, is not, that's not the way to do it. I don't believe in soulmates. Yeah. I don't believe in love yeah. at first sight. I'm just saying that if, for instance, you said earlier, you have to grow together as a couple. Now, mm-hmm. the amount of all the things that we talked about here, emotional stability, right. getting mm-hmm. that right, knowing how to fight well. Like, I mean, there's just a laundry list of happiness things right. that if you get right, you will be way primed way prime for because a marriage. Knowledge is power. In your relationships, in your work, in your spiritual life, knowledge is power. Mm. And and again, it, it all goes back to, it's, I know people who, you know, say, yeah, we knew each other for a week and we got married in Vegas. It's like, that's folly. Yeah. That's, that's just serendipity that it, you, you, that's just doesn't make sense. On the other hand, you know, when somebody says, I say, how long have you been dating that girl? It's like eight years. It's like, no, yeah, no, no. 
Um, and, and, you know, what's the right amount of time? This is what, this is a question of prudential judgment too. You know, my oldest son met his wife, now wife, when he was 24, early 24, they dated for six months. They were engaged for six months. They got married a year after they started dating. Mm. Their first child was born nine months later. Wow. I mean, that's called the six, six, nine cadence in Catholic life, by the way. Six, really? Yeah. That's a thing? That's a thing. Six months dating, six months engaged, nine months till the first baby. I mean, it's not, it's not that we recommend this. It's just, right. but it worked out really, really well because that was enough time, but it wasn't too much. Right. You know, it wasn't the kind of thing where, I don't know, why don't we live together for, you know, 50 mm -hmm. years before we decide whether or not to get married? That's that's not the right thing either. So, you know, prudential judgment is, is is and it's the same thing with a startup, by the way. I don't know. I think I need a little bit more experience. So when I was writing my dissertation, I would see these guys and, you know, I was doing my PhD with like, I got to read a couple more books. Like, mm -hmm. write your dissertation, <laughs> pop the question after mm -hmm. a certain point, but not on the first date. Yeah. I didn't have any trouble with that. So yeah. for me, when I met Lisa, I did not think I was going to get married. And then you? I was 24. Mm -hmm. And when we started dating, um, probably about three months in something, three, four months in something like that, I realized, oh shit, like I'm in love with her. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm either never getting married or I'm marrying this woman. Yeah. And so I proposed at eight months. And we had spent some of those eight months apart. So it wasn't even like we were living together for eight months or anything because she was in England. And then I was ready to get married right away. I was like, what's it take to get married about three months? And she's like, you are having a laugh. She's like, no way. This is going to take like a year to plan this wedding. So we ended up being together for about 18 months by the time we got married. Mm -hmm. But uh, good and it fast. Was, that's good. Yeah. By today's standards, perfect. that's fast. And, and by today's fast. standards, you were young. Yeah. Um, and, and again, society changes in different ways, but some of these, some of these principles don't change. I don't know if any of the yeah. principles change. Yeah. That's the thing. Like circumstances do, but principles don't. Yeah. yeah. So how do you, how do people grow together? Like what is the key there? Part of it is understanding that you have a, you, you, you are stronger when you are together <clears throat> and that one of the cues for you to change is the other person changing. Hmm. So not it, pe people who struggle, they think the cue for me to do something different in my life is I feel differently about something. One of the cues for you to do something differently in your, your life is that your spouse starts to think, feel differently about that. You have to take on the characteristics of the other person as if they were inside you. You know, so you find, for example, that your spouse is on a spiritual journey, starts to find stirrings of spirituality. Mm. That's a cue for you to do that too. Hmm. That's a cue for you to do that too. And to do that sincerely as well. And again, people say, well, you're losing your individuality and the whole thing. Yep. That's exactly right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. You're sublimating the individuality on these things to have greater strength in the union, right? So that you can have a greater multiplicity of experiences across the two of you, greater adventure and excitement across the two of you is the way that that works. And sometimes it's hard for people because they feel that they're the, the senior partner in the relationship, doesn't that's not the secret to a successful marriage mm. now there are social scientists that have very heterodox views on this there's a guy named eli finkel at northwestern um a psychologist who's written about marriage and he says that one of the reasons that marriage is so hard today is because we we expect too much from it he says you know we expect your best friend and your your one and only lover and your business partner and the person who helps you raise your kids and the only person to who who knows your secrets and it's like it's too much pressure 
for one relationship that was distributed across 10 people until about the 19th century or the 20th century. And, but in the time of the romantic era, uh, uh, where in, in, when, when romance took on its modern connotations, which is, it's everything mm-hmm. it's magic. It's a, you know, it's a, it, it simulates the relationship with God, even so the language that we've used in this conversation, that then it took on too much pressure and he recommends in his book about this that, and in his work and his, his very interesting research, that you, you, you ease off on the throttle a little bit, that you don't expect your wife to be your best friend necessarily. He even suggests that some couples do better when they're not the only exclusive sexual partner. I disagree with that. Exactly. Well, I disagree with that. I don't think that the, I don't think the data support that. I mean, again, as they say in finance, your results may differ, right? but they certainly don't in my case or yours. Yeah, that, uh, that one I can't imagine. Having unshared sexual experience. The only thing that I can imagine is if, yay, if you're like sharing something by all means, but when people go off, I just don't see how that works. And I certainly don't see how it works. If you invite another person into the stable pair bond, like, whoa, I know. And there's actually you as an evolution guy, you'll really, really like this literature that talks about why it screws up relationships. Mm. So there's a guy at university of Texas that does work on jealousy on the evolutionary basis of jealousy. And he had this hypothesis that men are more jealous of sexual infidelity and women are more jealous of emotional infidelity. And so what he does is he finds that, that, that women in relationships, they will forgive their husbands for sexual discretions, but not for falling in love with another woman. And a man, if, if, if your wife says, "I, I mean, yeah, I had an affair, all that. But it was only because I felt like I was falling in love. The sex was terrible. You'll be right. like, I, for, I forgive you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I forgive you. It's so asymmetrically weird. And the reason for this from an evolutionary basis is that males have to be really vigilant about making sure they're not inadvertently raising the offspring of another male. Yeah. And women have to be very vigilant to make sure that the provider and defender of the family doesn't stray and take a, and defend and provide for another family yep. and another and another female's offspring. And so that's why the the jealousy is going to work in that particular way. But no matter what I'm telling you, if you have, if you have an open marriage, somebody's going to fall in love, you know, and, and there's all kinds of stuff that can, that can go wrong on that. So that's not, I mean, again, it's like different social scientists disagree on that, but I think my reading of the data and my prudential judgment, not just my Catholicism suggests that that's not a wise course of action Mm. for most. I'm a big believer. I, I think you're right about that. I'm a big believer in what I call frame of reference. Yeah. So your frame of reference are your set of beliefs and your values. Right. There's other things at the fringes, but that's the core of it. And it will make all the difference. It's not what happens. It's how you perceive what happens. Just going right. back to Victor, Victor Frankel. So to that point, you said guys have to be really hyper-protective that they're not raising somebody else's kid, but you adopted a kid. Right. And so that to me speaks to frame of reference. So, yeah. and I've heard you say that you have every bit of love for yeah. your adopted daughter that you have for your biological kids, yeah. which I have no reason to believe is not yeah. true. So what did you do to your frame of reference in order to be able to welcome her? And even though we would both agree that from an evolutionary standpoint, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. It well, Yeah. From an evolutionary standpoint, it actually might make sense from an evolutionary standpoint, because if you, if there's an orphan, even in nature mm. will be adopted interesting. by, by non-human mammals will adopt orphans as their own. Mm. And sometimes it will be even a mistake. So you see a, the, the cuckoo bird will actually lay its eggs in the nest of other birds and then the egg, knock the eggs out of the nest of the other, of the, of the 
birds the, mm. that have the nest, and then the cuckoo will hatch and be taken care of by the surrogate mother. The it's unknowing where the name surrogate, cuckold surrogate. comes from. Right? Yeah, exactly right. And then, of course, the cuckoo is twice the size the regular bird, so it's hilarious because you know the the the, the parents baby are raising bird a is, gigantor. Is, exactly, no, it's, yeah. it's the funniest thing. So. So there, there is some evolutionary basis for that in the case of not raising somebody else's offspring per se, but raising an orphan and bringing the mm. child into your own family. And one of the things that you find is that it, the, my experience, but also the research shows that the oxytocin release for an adopted child is just as high as it is for a biological child. Mm. So you basically know that this is my child. You lay eyes on that child and it's 4th of July all over. It's Roman candles in your head. And, and it is forever. And so it's funny because... You don't actually know till you do it. It's all a theory. Right. Oh yeah, no, you know the bond with the adopted child will be just as much as with the biological child. It's 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 weird because intellectually it's a it's a stronger bond in some ways because it's this this election, it's this human will on top of the neurophysiology of mm. of human connection on top of it. It's really something. I have to say, it's funny. It's funny, but it's just deep, 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 deep love. Mm. And for both, both, both kinds of kids. It's really interesting. Yeah. Speaking of kids, how does a good Catholic end up with a son who becomes a sniper? <laughs> yeah, there've been a lot of good, uh, good service members in the Marine Corps, but my son, Carlos, it's interesting. So I used to, <clears throat> I, my, my approach with my kids has been given that life is a startup, they need a business plan and I need a business plan from them because I'm VC right? And I deserve a good business plan. And so I had my kids write business plans in high school. And when they were not original or no good, I'd send them back for revisions. And Carlos's business plan had like six rounds of revisions. The first one was very unoriginal. He was not a motivated student in high school. <clears throat> it was always like, you know, it's, he's getting a C in history. He's getting a D in Latin. He's getting, you know, all this. And, and he, he's clear he was not cut out for the you know, the, for college. Mm. And when it came time, you know, he got a big athletic scholarship. He's a great, big, healthy, strapping, coordinated athletic boy. And, um, but I said in his business plan, you need something more original than that. You know, I'm an academic, so this isn't breaking my heart, but you know, so finally he comes back and he says, part of it is because your business plan as a kid has to answer two questions, by the way, as an adult too. The question, the, the, the meaning requires that you have two answers to two questions. This is the diagnostic test. Why are you alive? And for what are you willing to die today? Mm. If you don't have answers to those questions, you have a meaning crisis. I don't know what your answers are, but you have to have real answers, not BS answers, not How nonsense How old answers. were they when you started asking this High question? school. So like junior year in high school. Mm. And he didn't have answers. So... Where are you going to go find the answers? And he had a very good answer to the question of how to find the answers, <laughs> which was, I want to go work hard with my hands outdoors. Why do you think that was a good answer? Because I, I believe that that was the case for him. He's a very kinetic boy. Mm. You know, he was, a, he was a kid who he had um, strong um, an affinity for the outdoors, fishing, hunting, which is not in our family. You know, I didn't grow up. I, I, I used to, I used to go fishing every year in Lincoln city and the, on the Oregon coast when mm -hmm. I was a kid. And you know, that kind of thing, but outdoorsman, my dad was a professor. Right. And, and so, but he was really into it. He's good at what good, that whole thing. So he took a job as a, 
a dryland wheat farmer up in Idaho in Grangeville and worked two harvests, made a bunch of money. He was alone all the time with his thoughts. He was mm. digging rocks out of the soil and mending fences and driving. Was out. he making it spiritual for himself or did well, just he the was, nature he was going to church. I mean, he was, I was kind of half-heartedly, you know, but, but it wasn't spiritual so much as he was, he was looking for these answers to meaning, you know, why am I alive? What does it mean for me to be alive? For, mm. for what would I be willing to die? And at the end of that, and, and this was kind of vaguely part of the business plan, but it became clearer as time went on. He said, I want to, I want to join the Marines. I want to see what I'm made of. And, and so he did, and it was hard, you know, boot camp was hard. He broke his foot a couple of times and a couple of times twice. Jesus. Yeah. And then he went into the infantry training battalion because he was a war fighter, which is 15% of the Marine Corps are, are, are combat Marines. What does that mean? I thought they were all war fighters. Yeah, but 85% are in support roles. 15% of the war fighters, the door Whoa. kickers and the and the riflemen. Wow, I didn't realize it was that yeah. lopsided. Yes, he was in the infantry. Yeah, Whoa. for sure. I mean, there's logistics and mechanics. And I mean, there's mm. so many jobs to support the 15%. And then from there, he became a mortarman. And from there, he went into the elite sniper corps, which is a really, really hard in, in out during any of this? Kind of, except that what do you want as a dad you want a kid who has the answers to these questions because this is what it means to be fully alive. Hmm. There's this saint in the fourth century named St. Irenaeus. And he's most famous for saying the glory of God is a man fully alive. Like, don't give me half dead. Don't give me half dead. And half dead is, I don't know why I'm alive and I don't know what for what I'm willing to die. I want, I want my kids, I want the people in my life and my friends to be able to have answers to these particular questions. So I was scared, but I was... I was energized by his particular energy. And it's so interesting because, you know, the, the, the sniper corps, the scout sniper platoon, which is a, which is a, a, a branch of the special forces. They, they sit three hours behind the scope of a rifle, just sitting there. And they're, they're, this is a kid who couldn't concentrate in school. Mm. I mean, he could, he's like ADHD, whatever that is, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a funny diagnosis. He, their their motto is suffer patiently, patiently suffer. <laughs> That's my son. I'm super proud of him. I'm scared, but I'm super proud of him. Is he active duty? Yeah. He's active duty. He's getting down to Camp Oof. Pendleton Oof. right now. Yeah, for sure. For sure. He's, how does, how he's does 23 he... years old. He's married. Wow. He's, uh, he, cause when he, when he got that, you know, when he got that, then things became clearer. When he answered, because, you know, why are and you alive? Did you already say what he said? Because if you did, sorry, I missed no, it. No, I didn't. His answers are, I am alive because God made me. For what am I willing to die today? For my faith, for my family, for my friends, and for the United States of America. Whoa. And for our allies, for those of you listening, or, you know, that he died for you too. And, and those aren't everybody's answers. Those might not be your answers, but man, those are solid answers. And when you have the answers, life proceeds. Life proceeds. Life becomes linear. Life becomes clear. That's why meaning is so critically important. And boy, that my son taught me a lot. He's like, I got the theories. I got the data. But seeing it play out, it's, it's thrilling. So, you know, the phone rings at 2 a.m. Don't like it. Not looking forward to that. Mm. When he's like, yeah, going on a field trip. Not great. Not great, but I'll take it. I'll take it all day. Every time I get to spend time with you, I love it the most. It's amazing. Where can people follow you? Where can they get the new book? Thank you. Arthurbrooks.com is that has a sort of 
it, it, it collects all the stuff that I do. Mm. My column on the science of happiness is published called how to, is build is how to build a life at the Atlantic every Thursday morning in the Atlantic, the Atlantic, um, dot com. And my new book with Oprah Winfrey, build the life you want, the art and science of getting happier September 12th from penguin random house. I wrote it because I want people to understand these ideas to change, <clears throat> to change their habits and, and share these ideas with others. Mm. Thank you for having this conversation with me. Thank course, you for what man. you're doing. Thank you for your heart. Ah, thank you. The book's amazing. Everybody. I highly encourage you to pick it up. And speaking of things I highly encourage you to do, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace. Stop struggling with a lack of focus and energy while trying to reach your peak performance. Take it from me. If you want to reach another level, you need to hit your body with all the nutrients it needs every single day to really maximize your performance. And there's no better way to make sure that you get all the micronutrients that you need than with AG1. AG1 is a foundational nutritional supplement that truly supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you know that I rarely use supplements with the exception of vitamin D3 and AG1. Just one scoop of AG1 supports your whole body with 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food source nutrients to support optimal health of your brain, body, and gut. If you're looking for a simple, effective investment in your health, try AG1 and get five free AG1 travel packs and a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Just go to drinkag1.com impact. That's drinkag1.com impact. Give it a try.